In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we read those closing words of the fifth chapter of Daniel that tell us Belshazzar, the very night of his feast, was killed, and that Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Daniel 6 picks up right from there. So let's look today at Daniel 6, beginning with verses 1 to 9. It pleased Darius, sorry, it could be sometimes we say Darius or Darius. I guess in Persian it would be Dariush. I'll try to say Darius. But it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Darius the Mede. You might remember last week I said he's a bit of a mysterious character. I think the author of Daniel does something very deliberate here that would, to the people originally hearing this, it would have signaled a change in the sort of story being told. Unless you've studied ancient Near Eastern history, this probably doesn't seem important. It just goes right by. It doesn't catch your attention to hear Darius the Mede. But if you have studied ancient Near Eastern history, when you hear Darius the Mede, it's going to get your attention because, wait a minute, that's not right. Darius wasn't a Mede. He was a Persian. And he didn't rule before Cyrus. He ruled almost 20 years after these events, after the exile was over and after Daniel had died. And Jews would have noticed that same thing. They knew the history. Darius figures heavily in the historical books of Ezra and of Nehemiah and the prophetic books of Haggai and Zechariah. 
So I think that a Jew hearing this, especially as the story continues, I think a Jew hearing this would have seen it as a signal that the genre, the type of storytelling has changed. And there's a good reason, I think, for the storyteller to make this change. Chapters 6 and 7 are transitions in the book of Daniel from those earlier stories that were sort of like a type of wisdom literature advising people, how do you act in these difficult situations? How do you remain faithful? It's transitioning now to Daniel's apocalyptic vision that takes up the second half of the book. So we're moving from, you could say, from the historical to the prophetic and apocalyptic. And the book makes this transition with one last story about Daniel in exile. But this time, it's... Well, I've struggled with this for a good month now. But the best thing I can think to call it is a prophetic parable. It's a story that serves a different purpose than the other stories. And as we move from the historical to the apocalyptic, this story of Daniel and the lion's den makes us pause, and it reminds us of the big picture, the big story about the God of Israel and his people. It reminds us, and it reminded them, that God has a plan, and he is directing all of history, including kings and emperors, toward an end goal. And it reminds his people of their place in that big story and what they've been called to be and to do. So it begins with this guy, Darius. And on the one hand, in the previous verse, he's called the Mede. But here, he's presented as the Darius who organized his empire into satrapies, sort of provinces or states. And that is exactly what Darius the Great, who followed roughly 20 years later and was a Persian, that's what he did. And I don't think this is a mistake. I don't think it's a historical error. I think it's deliberate. This character is a sort of composite of pagan kings who represents or who stands for something in the story. That theme fits with things we'll see in the later half of Daniel. But again, we're moving, I think, from history to parable here. Think of the parables that Jesus told. You know, this character represents the faithful in Israel. That character represents the unfaithful in Israel. This character over here represents the Gentiles. This king represents God. You have people in the stories who represent other peoples or groups. And here, the king and his satraps, I think, represent the rulers of the Gentiles. Daniel represents Israel. Like Daniel, Israel had the Lord's favor. She was his favorite amongst the nations, and the nations became jealous. And that's exactly what happens to Daniel in this story. When they see how he's been elevated, and he's been given authority over them, and he's the favorite of the king, all these satraps chafe. Because Daniel, he's one of those those exiles. He's not one of us. He didn't deserve the special status he had. He didn't deserve his rank or his favor with the king. So they're angry. As we see, they're really angry. So they get together and they conspire against him. 
there are really powerful echoes of Psalm 2 here. In fact, I think if you wanted to turn Psalm 2, which is one of those big picture psalms that encompasses the whole story and eventually winds up pointing us to Jesus, I think if you wanted to turn Psalm 2 into a parable, it just might end up looking a lot like Daniel 6. That psalm begins asking the question, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations rage and plot in vain. Notice where they attack Daniel. It was the law of his God. Daniel's blameless. There's nothing they can pin on him, so they go after his faith. And in that, they're not just attacking Daniel. Through Daniel, this is an attack on God himself. It echoes what it meant in the Old Testament to stand against Israel and, and looking forward to Jesus and then, and then to the church. Think about it in the New Testament. To attack, to, to attack Jesus was to attack God himself. To attack the church was to attack Jesus himself. Think of Jesus' confrontation of Paul on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? Paul never did anything to Jesus, but he was going after his people. To attack the church was to attack Jesus himself. To attack the Lord's anointed is to set oneself up against the Lord himself. So these men, they go to the king, apparently all of them. The satraps who were sort of viceroys over the provinces. Daniel's two fellow triumvirs go as well. And all the other counselors and officials. Imagine the size of this gang. Everybody hates Daniel. But they know that Daniel has favor with the king. So in order to take him down, they're going to have to deceive and manipulate the king. So they hatch this scheme to recommend a law. And this injunction will ban everyone in the empire from petitioning any god for 30 days. For that time period, everyone will be required to bring their petitions to the king and only the king. And the penalty, well, you all know the story. The penalty for anyone who breaks this injunction will be the lion's den. Now again, the details signal that this isn't the same kind of story we've had before in Daniel. Again, I think it's a parable or something like that. As the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed in Psalm 2, all the king's governors and counselors rage against Daniel and through them they rage against his God. The decree, this decree is not something that a Persian king would have signed or a Babylonian or any other ancient Near Eastern king for that matter. The Jews who read this would have known that. The Persians were known for their religious and cultural tolerance, and especially their friendliness to the Jews. Not only were they tolerant, but the Persian kings were Zoroastrians and would not have put themselves in the position of the gods. But even all that aside, to ban prayer to the gods was religious and political suicide. I mean, think of Nabonidus, whom we read about um, a a, a week or two ago. He downgraded Marduk, who was sort of the the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon, and elevated his own favorite god named Sin, the moon god. 
And it got him into all sorts of trouble. So you can imagine the trouble that a king would get himself into if he made it illegal to pray for anyone, to pray to anyone but himself. And of course, we have to ask, well, why only for 30 days? If you're going to put yourself in the place of the gods, why not do it long term? But I think the absurdity of the law is meant to highlight the unhinged rage that these men had against Daniel and his God. And it reflects the real-life experience of Israel, beginning with Pharaoh and running all the way through their story down to Antiochus Epiphanes. Men who so hate the Lord and his anointed that they will cut their own noses off to spite their faces. I mean, even the punishment is sort of deliberately over the top. Because as far as we know, nobody in Babylon or Persia kept lions around in dens. Kings might catch and release lions for hunting, but they didn't keep them for pets or to execute prisoners. At least, we have no record of anything like that. But this threat hanging over Daniel represents the very real threat hanging over the faithful in Israel. And you're not going to get help from the pagan kings. I remember watching an interview between R.C. Sproul and Frankie Schaefer. He said, what is the, the biggest problem in the world today, do you think? And Schaefer said, statism. The state has become our savior. And we look away from God. And it's foolish. I mean, as much as the king here favors Daniel, and you've got this guy, Darius, he is the great emperor, the greatest king on earth. And yet in the story, he's a pathetic dupe who gets conned and fooled by his advisors and ends up hobbled by his own laws. In contrast to the perfect law of of, of the God of Israel, this great law of the Medes and Persians, like so many other human laws, it's arbitrary, it's short-sighted, and it's self-defeating. We cannot put our trust in these things. But what's Daniel to do now? You can imagine him reading that document or hearing about the document after it was signed. So we continue with verse 10. It says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. What, what do you do in that situation? We've seen in some of the earlier stories that sometimes the wise thing for God's people to do is just to keep their heads down and pursue a quiet faithfulness. Being faithful doesn't always mean sticking your head up so that it can be cut off. But Daniel knew that these guys were watching him. He could have closed the shutters and prayed inside without them being able to see He could have gone somewhere else to pray out of sight. But to do that in this case would be to betray his God. 
So he continues to pray the same way he always had, morning, noon, and evening. And as he prays, he prays in the direction of the temple in Jerusalem. That was a tradition begun by Solomon at the dedication of the temple, right at the very beginning. And Daniel continued it, and in that he declares his hope. For all his status and privilege in this foreign land and with a foreign king, Daniel makes it clear that his ultimate hope lies in the promises of of the God of Israel. Promises to deliver his people from their exile, to return them to the promised land, to rebuild his temple and to live in their midst. Daniel knew that God is faithful, and because of that he trusted him. And his posture, even his very posture in prayer, highlights his trust in the God God of Israel's promises. And he makes that trust public. And, of course, the inevitable happens. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king! Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. He pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. So they go back to their spying on Daniel. They probably didn't need to. They could have just assumed he would continue doing what he was doing, but they want their evidence. So they go back and spy on Daniel, and then they take their evidence to the king, You can just feel how smarmy these guys are in the way the story is told. Oh, king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who petitions anyone but you shall be cast into the den of lions? I mean, like like the king wouldn't remember if he'd signed such a petition. I mean, think about it. Again, we get a sense of just how pathetic earthly kings are and how foolish it is to put our hope in them. Oh, yes, he says, of course I remember. It's now the unchangeable law of the Medes and Persians. He sets the stage for what's coming next here. But we're left wondering, I mean, how long has it been? Even if it's only been a few days, hasn't the king been really, really, really busy answering petitions? I mean, think about it. If King Charles said nobody in Canada is allowed to petition any god or man except me, you think he'd probably be pretty busy all of a sudden, wouldn't he? Yet Darius doesn't seem to be any busier than usual. What's going on? I mean, if these guys, and just think about these satraps and governors and triumvirs and counselors and, and these guys coming to Darius here, if they had been bringing their petitions to the king, they hardly needed to ask him if he remembered signing the injunction. So either these guys had been ignoring the injunction and praying to their gods anyway, or, and I think this is the implication, 
They're exposed as a bunch of impious louts who don't pray anyways. They stand in stark contrast to Daniel who prayed three times a day and no doubt as he was doing that was lifting up this king and his empire to the Lord. Daniel's the one who serves the king. Not these guys. They don't care at all. They only care about themselves and their own power and status. Verses 14 to 18. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Everything's backwards. So the king gives in. He commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, And slept, fled from him. So the king regrets his decision, only now, realizing that he's been duped. And try as he might, there's nothing he can do. And his advisors come and (laughs) they put themselves in the role of the king. The greatest king, the most powerful man in the world, stands useless and powerless to save Daniel or to intervene on his behalf. I mean, even as he exhorts Daniel to pray to his God for deliverance, he's commanding Daniel to be thrown into this pit of lions and sealing the opening with his own signet. But now what the satraps and counselors intended as a punishment and an execution, the king unwittingly turns into a contest, a trial. Will Daniel's God deliver him? Daniel's inside, the den is sealed, nobody can can intervene. The Most High God has in his sovereignty used the wickedness of evil men and the foolishness of the king to orchestrate a situation that will reveal his glory. And that the lion's den points prophetically to the tomb in which Jesus would lay. What will the king find when the stone is rolled away in the morning? Has evil won the day, or has the living God? And not unlike Jesus' friends, the king goes home, and too anxious to eat or sleep, he paced and prayed. And then the next verse, we can almost you know, see the king's robes flying behind him and hear his sandals slapping as he runs in a very unkingly fashion to the lion's den at sunrise. It says, Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. <clears throat> as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. 
My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel knows he's the one who's loyal. He's the one who serves the king. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So the king runs there. He gets there ahead of everybody else. The stone's too heavy for him to move himself. Sounds a little bit like another story we know. And he calls out to Daniel, O servant of the living God, are you still there? Has the God whom you so faithfully served delivered you from the lions? It's a wonderful confession there. The king talks of the living God. It's a powerful witness. Living God just doesn't mean, I mean, it, it, it means more than just God isn't dead. To talk of the living God in the Old Testament means that God is active, that he's powerful, that he's awesome and mighty, that he brings judgment and blessing. Again, the satraps and counselors, they expected an execution. But Darius has turned this into a contest. Will the God of Daniel act? Will he vindicate himself by delivering his servant? And of course, God has done just that. The king hears Daniel's voice echoing up from under the stone. O king, live forever! (laughs) I'm still here. Yes, my God has delivered me. And in in an echo of the fiery furnace episode, God once again sent his angel, this time to shut the lion's mouths. And Daniel is alive and well. Not so much as a scratch. The king's men finally get there and they roll the stone away and Daniel emerges unharmed because he trusted in God. The God of Israel has won the contest. And the satraps and the triumvirs and the counselors of the king have lost. So the king turns the tables, verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. The consensus seems to be that that means all 120 satraps with their families are thrown to the lions. I mean, hundreds of people. Again, I don't think the the scene isn't realistic in trying to figure out how they could possibly do this and how the lions could possibly eat hundreds of people and all of that is kind of to miss the point of the parable. The scene calls back to the Lord's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. It calls back to passages like Isaiah 41 11. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. And again, I think this is what Psalm 2 looks like as a parable. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. (coughs) Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That would certainly be Daniel, wouldn't it? But the psalm is a declaration of the Lord's intent to be glorified. He has made a people for himself. He has given them a king, and through them he will be glorified. He will be glorified in the nations and kings who see him at work in and through his people (coughs) and give him glory. Excuse me. will be glorified in the nations and the kings who see him at work in his people and give him glory. And he will be glorified as he vindicates his people and judges those who oppress them. And that's just what we see as the satraps are thrown to the lions. And as Darius glorifies the Lord in the closing verses of the story, It says, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, (coughs) people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And then it closes saying, This Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, the historical Darius was, you might call him an evangelical Zoroastrian. History, not to mention lots of his own inscriptions, show that Darius was single-mindedly devoted to his god, Ahura Mazda. But this is a parable, and I think the king here is sort of a composite of the Gentile kings. He represents the Gentile kings of the earth, and while the satraps represent the Gentiles who will persist in their unbelief and eventually be judged, the king here represents those kings like the ones we see in in John's revelation, who see the God of Israel as he vindicates his son, as he vindicates his church, and who, as they see the living God at work, believe. And we finally see them coming to the new Jerusalem to glorify this living God. Darius' decree is echoed by the songs we hear in the heavenly throne room in John's vision as they acknowledge the saving power and the everlasting dominion of the God of Israel. And in that, I think we see the prophetic side of this parable that begins to transition into Daniel's apocalyptic vision. In that, it points us powerfully to Jesus in the same way that Psalm 2 does. 
The psalm is about Israel and about King David, but it points forward to Jesus who would embody Israel and Israel's king in order to accomplish the saving work of God and to establish his everlasting dominion. Daniel's dilemma points to Jesus. When Daniel went home to pray, he knew he would fall afoul of the king's new law. He knew he would end up in the lion's den. He didn't know if he would live or die that day. He had the example of his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, but he didn't know if the Lord would send his angel to deliver someone again. Miracles don't happen every day. That's why they're miracles. What were the chances it would happen twice? But Daniel knew that he didn't have a choice. He could dishonor God by hiding his prayer, or he could continue to give glory to God by showing his unwavering faithfulness to him. This was always Israel's choice through her history. Daniel chose to remain faithful and to glorify God, and in that he points us to Jesus. Daniel knew with certainty that the living God vindicates his anointed. Jesus knew that too. We don't always know what form that vindication may take or when it may happen. Daniel escaped without a scratch. Jesus was scourged, beaten, and killed. But in the end, the Lord vindicated both and revealed his glory to the watching world. And in that, there is a reminder. And I think maybe the main purpose of this prophetic parable, assuming that's what it is, Brothers and sisters, the Lord does not merely glorify himself. He has, to use the imagery of Psalm 2, he has anointed a people for himself. And that people, beginning with this little family and then an ethnic group in the Old Testament, but now a worldwide family of people united to Jesus and filled with God's own spirit, The living God has anointed a people for himself, a people full of his own life, that we might reveal and proclaim his glory to the world. And in that, he then reveals his own glory as he vindicates us before the watching world. And there's a reason why God's people are called to a life of humility and sacrifice and sometimes even martyrdom. There's a reason Jesus calls us to take up our crosses if we are to follow him. Because the Lord reveals his glory in our deliverance. He slays the dragon and rescues his bride and becomes the hero as the world watches. Quote the Roman scholar and priest David Burrell, who died a few months ago. He said, We are never enjoined in the scriptures to accomplish anything. The recurring theme of the psalmist, who summarizes as only poets can the sweep of God's covenanting with his people. The recurring theme of the psalmist is that we are to recount often and loudly. God's accomplishments, his great deeds on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, if we have really and truly believed the good news about Jesus 
and all the long history of the Lord's faithfulness to his people, if we really believe that good news, it ought to work out in our lives as we recount often and loudly what he has done. Because we want to proclaim his greatness and his goodness and his faithfulness for the sake of his glory and because we desire for the whole world to know him as we have so that one day the knowledge of his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Hebrews famously speaks of that great cloud of witnesses around us, witnesses who ought to inspire us to faithfulness by their own. But brothers and sisters, remember that you and I are ourselves a part of that cloud. As those witnesses exhort us, we exhort each other, and we exhort those who will come after us. So let us be faithful in running the race that is set before us, knowing the mighty deeds of God, knowing his faithfulness, and above all, looking to Jesus, who has perfected our faith by enduring the cross, despising the shame, And because of that, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confessed in today's collect that we have no power to help ourselves. You are the living God who, through the death and resurrection of your Son, has graciously restored us to life. Keep the cross ever before us, that we might always remember our helplessness and your great grace and might and often and loudly proclaim your glory. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.